helping to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. This is the Constitution Study on the America Out Loud Network with your host, Paul Engel. Most Americans know that the First Amendment protects our freedom of religion, that we have a separation of church and state, and that you cannot have religion in schools. But how true are those three statements? What impact does the infringement of freedom of religion have on our republic? How important is freedom of religion to America? And why should we the people stand up to defend it for all peoples, even those we disagree with? So today, I want to take a look at these questions and some recent news articles to help us better understand just how important this right is. Well, hello there, everyday Americans. Paul Engel here with the Constitution Study. This is where we read and study the Constitution. We teach a rising generation to be free. You know, at the moment, I am on my, well, not at the moment, I'm recording this, but I am on my way to the first stop for my first leg of the Blessings of Liberty Tour 2022. I am so looking forward to this. I am on my way to North Dakota, where I will share not only what the Blessings of Liberty are, but how we've lost them, and, and more importantly, how we can get them back. Now, if you want to find out more about the tour, if you want to find out if I'm coming near you, or if you would like to to have me come to you, well, just go to constitutionstudy.com tour, and uh, you can see my schedule. You'll learn more about the tour. And yes, there's a form you can fill out that uh, will request that I come to your location. Um, if you fill that out, I will contact you. We'll see if we can make it happen. Um, as I said, this is the first leg. I have multiple places I'm planning on going. Uh, I've had invites from different parts of the country, and I'm actively working to set up those tour legs, and I will announce them here just as soon as I have that information. You know, I've been doing interviews and other things promoting this uh, this tour, and uh, I, I'm getting some really wonderful reactions because I think this is important. And I'm going to ask one other thing before I continue on, and that is, if you can support the tour, if you think bringing this type of message to the country is important, I'm going to ask you to head to that website, constitutionstudy.com tour, donate to the tour, help me bring this information to more and more people. I don't charge to show up at these events. No one is paying to get in to hear this message. So I got to pay the bill somehow. So again, I'm looking for people that are, that are willing to put their fortunes behind the spreading of this information and donate to the tour. Again, it's all there on constitutionstudy.com slash tour. Now, today I want to talk about freedom of religion. You know, it's one of those things that everybody kind of knows, but a lot of people don't quite have all the bits and pieces. So I made three opening statements in this episode, right? The first was that the First Amendment protects our freedom of religion. Well, that's one is partially true. You see, the First Amendment says, Congress shall make no law regarding the establishment of religion, nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Now, there are three very important things to note from that. First, Congress shall make no law. See, the First Amendment only protects your freedom of religion from the impact of Congress, or by extension, the federal government. There cannot be a law at the federal level that... it that impacts your freedom of religion in the two ways we're going to discuss in just a moment. 
that's important because although the courts say that suddenly the 14th Amendment means that the First Amendment applies to the states, um, still says Congress, uh, but no. If we properly read the actual language of the Bill of Rights of the First Amendment, we see that the First Amendment protects you from Congress and the federal government impacting your freedom of religion. Now, for everyone out there thinking, oh my God, does that mean freedom of religion is not protected? Each and every state has a constitution. That's how they were formed. How That's how their governments were formed. And in those, they have either a Bill of Rights or a Declaration of Rights. And in those bills and declarations of rights is the protection of your freedom of religion. But if you look at some of these, you'll notice that while one of the two clauses in the federal uh, the federal Bill of Rights is present, is always present, the other is not. So let's take a look at those. So uh, Congress made a law regarding respecting the establishment of of a religion. Congress cannot create, they cannot establish a religion. Now, what does it mean to establish a religion? Because there are a lot of people that say, hey, if you even mention a religion, well, that's establishing a religion and uh, that for, therefore it's prohibited. Well, that's not exactly what I, what our founding fathers thought. See, now, Noel Webster, he compiled his dictionary, which he published in 1828, he was also invited to uh, edit the Federalist Papers. So he was a contemporary. It's one of the reasons why I use his dictionary. And if I look up the word establish in his dictionary, it says to set and fix firmly or unalterably, to settle permanently. It also means to found permanently, to erect and fix or settle. Third, the third sense is to say to enact or, by, or decree by authority and for permanence to ordain to a point as to establish laws. So we have this idea of to establish a religion involves a couple of things. It involves creating a religion or making it permanent, right? giving it authority. Uh, you think of the Church of England, which is part of the reason we have the this particular uh, clause in the Bill of Rights is in England, we had a state church. Every member of England um, had money collected in taxes that was given to the state church. Uh, in fact, the king or queen is considered the head of the state church. We didn't want that. We didn't want the United States to have a church, a religion, uh, whether it be a denomination of Christianity or anything else. So Congress is not allowed to establish, to create, to enforce, to set or make or fixly or firmly fix a religion. They can't play favorites, in other words. But if you look at the constitutions of most of our states, at least the ones I can remember, they don't have this establishment clause. See, it's called the this is called the establishment clause, the establishing religion. They don't have it. In fact, when the Constitution was ratified, uh, many states had state religions. Uh, Virginia, I think, was Anglicanism. Pennsylvania, maybe Quakers. Um, Massachusetts and Connecticut uh, might have been Congregationalists. But the point was, the states had state religions. Religions, you know, that um, uh, sometimes were supported by taxes. Uh, sometimes, in order to serve in government, you had to be a member of the state church. Now, I'm not 
I'm not making a comment of whether that was a good thing or a bad thing. We're looking what the Constitution actually says. So when it comes to freedom of religion, uh, unless it's being attacked by the federal government, you're looking at a state level, and the states do not have a... Con- in most states, at least states I I'm, can think of off the top of my head, do not have a prohibition on the creation of a state church. Now, by tradition, we don't have state churches. But it also means that we don't have... Uh, um, the, the, the Constitution of our states doesn't say you cannot have a religion. You, you cannot support a religion. Well, that's not entirely true. See, there are a bunch of states that have what are called Blaine Amendments. Uh, Blaine was a U.S. senator that tried to get an amendment added to the Constitution to prohibit the use of public funds for any sectarian purpose. Uh, That amendment, by the way, never made it out of the Senate. It was not passed by Congress, never went to the states. But a bunch of states, in fact, I think as many as 37 of them, actually adopted Blaine Amendment, saying that no public funds could be used for any sectarian purpose. And that word sectarian, we don't use that very much nowadays, but it's an important understanding. The idea was, um, in, 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 for example, most religions have sex, right? S-E-C-T-S. And, uh, you know, the Christian religion, we call them denominations, right? So you've got Baptists, you've got uh, Roman Catholics, you've got Lutherans, you've got uh, Presbyterians. Those are considered sects. They are different factions of a religion. Similarly, uh, in in Islam, you have uh, Wahhabi, you have have Sunni and Shia. These are different sects. These are different divisions of the Muslim faith. Um, In Judaism, you have Reformed, you have Messianic, you have... um, Orthodox. I even think there's a version called Halitha. I'm not sure about or Halithia. I'm not sure about that one. But the idea was they weren't to be used for sectarian purposes. Well, can I make an argument that there's a difference between being sectarian and being and, and religious, or supporting a sectarian purpose and supporting a religious purpose? For example, uh, let's say I think Maine is one of these states. Let's say that. Uh, the state of Maine had a program that uh, um, I don't know, provided funding for improving playgrounds uh, in both uh, uh, public and private venues. Right. So if you had a if you had a, a, a private park and you had a playground, you could apply to the state and get uh, I think they were using um, like ground up tires to make soft landing places for the kids. Now. And I don't remember if it was Maine or not, but they would not approve uh, a grant to this one group because they were associated with a specific church. And the question is, was it they, they said they wouldn't because it's a religious organization and the state's Blaine Amendment prevented them from doing this. Well, I guess the question then becomes, uh, is it because they were religious or it was because it was a specific denomination. And again, this is something to be dealt with. I'm, I'm not trying to have all the answers. I'm not trying to tell you how to, but this is the way my mind thinks when I see these types of, of things. So let's go back to the original question, right? The First Amendment, um, we have, it's only Congress. 
If you want protection of freedom of religion from state actions, you have to look at your state constitution. Uh, I'm not aware, I should say most states that I'm aware of do not have a free exercise clause in the state constitution, but they all have a free expression clause, or what's called the exercise clause, meaning you have the right to worship, and in, in most cases they have, they say, you, you know, you, you have the ability to worship God. Most of them say to exercise your religion in public. And that's an important part. See, very often when I'm looking at, at freedom of religion cases, the issue isn't a so much. And the problem brought up is, is everybody says, you're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to exercise your religion. You're not allowed to uh, participate in this group or you're not allowed to... Um, do this function because it violates the separation of church and state, which we're going to get to in just a minute. But remember, we have a right protected by the Constitution, both the United States and the several states, to exercise our religion, which means they can only deprive of that if we are using that exercise in a way that harms or limits the rights of another. Same thing, you just think of it as freedom of speech, but applied to religion. So those are the three aspects of that. So um, before I get to my first break, I want to talk about this separation of church and state because it is something that there's a lot of, of misunderstandings about. Now, a lot of people say, oh, that's right, Jefferson's separation. Well, I should say most people say the Constitution erects a wall of separation between church and state. Uh, several people know that this actually is not in, that language is not in the Constitution, but that it comes from a letter that uh, Thomas Jefferson sent as president to the Danbury Baptists saying, don't worry, the Constitution, he believes the Constitution creates a wall of separation between church and state. But I want you to notice two very important things about it. Because although I believe Jefferson was referring to the U.S. Bill of Rights, remember, Congress shall make no law. So there's a limitation there. But if you read the letter, which, by the way, courts used to quote the entire letter in their opinions originally. They don't do that anymore. The whole idea was this wall was to prevent the church from being overrun by the state. It was to protect the church from the state, not the other way around. So those of you who say, yes, the word separation, those of you who say that separation of church and state does not exist in the Constitution, that's, again, partially true. The word separation of church and state do not exist in the Constitution. But this idea that there is to be a separation between church and state to prevent the state from telling the church what to do, how to do it, and when to do it, that is there in both the free exercise clause and in the establishment clause. Now, the third question I had brought up at the beginning dealt with religion in schools. And, of course, a lot of people say, oh, no, you can't have religion in schools. You can't have religion in schools. Uh, some people will say, well, you can't have religion in public schools. But I want you to consider this. Most schools, including many of our top universities, were actually set up specifically to educate in the Christian doctrine. Uh, schools like Harvard, Yale were set up to originally seminaries to teach uh, uh, Christian preachers. But even in our public schools, uh, for decades early on, we used the Bible as a reader to teach the basics of, of reading and writing. So 
I think the the problem we have is if we're going to be fair, if we're going to let one school or one religion into school, at least as a public school, we have to let all religions into public school. And that, of course, gets into a touchy subject, right? Um, you know, today there are places that have classes on on Muslim, uh, uh, the Muslim religion, but they refuse to have them on the Christian religion. Or maybe they'll teach about Buddhism or even um, uh, humanism, but not about Christian about the Christian religion. And I think that's the problem we have is we either have to decide we're not going to have any religion or we're going to have all religions. And since most people I know are not comfortable with having all religions in the public school, we're pretty much stuck with no religion taught in the public school. But that's not the same as saying you can't have religion because, well, you still have to allow people to exercise their religion. So before I go to the break, I want to remind everyone to please go to HealthyCell.com. If you're like me, you take vitamins, you take supplements to keep yourself healthy uh, and to help you live a better life. But Healthy Cell has basically reinvented the vitamin. It hasn't happened since the 1930s. They are a leading innovator in supplements designed to work at the cellular level, and they have some really great products. Now, one that I'm going to be using a lot now is called REM sleep. I don't know about you. When I travel, I generally don't sleep very well. So I like to take a supplement. I like to take a REM sleep because it helps me fall asleep and stay asleep so I can wake up rested and ready to go. So try the REM sleep. In fact, try any of the Healthy Cells products. But here, go to HealthyCell.com and use the code out loud. Healthy Cell will give you 25% off your first order for using that code out loud. So again, go to HealthyCell.com, put your order together, include anything you want. I love the REM sleep, but make sure you use the code out loud at checkout. It lets them know that you listen to America Out Loud. And as a thank you, they'll give you 25% off your first order. In 2008, the amount of concentrated time people could spend on a task without becoming distracted was 12 seconds. Five years later, it was only eight seconds, one second less than a goldfish. The digital age is narrowing our attention span. Trouble concentrating or recalling information is frustrating, embarrassing, and kills productivity. Advanced nutrition company Healthy Cell created Focus and Recall to boost your brain power. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Focus and Recall is not a pill. It's a patent-pending gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients to help you immediately sharpen focus, concentrate longer, and strengthen recall. These physician-formulated gels come in a small gel pack. Tear off the top, shoot it down, or mix it in water. Over a thousand reviews with an average star rating of over 4.5 proves it works. Supercharge your brain and see the difference. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. That's HealthyCell.com. Code out loud. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day, yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next.
Americans, we seek to form a more perfect union. To paraphrase Abraham Lincoln, we are a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And God willing, we shall not perish from the earth. AmericaOutloud.com Liberty and justice for all. Welcome back, Everyday Americans. If you join the Constitution study, today we're talking about the importance of freedom of religion. And I want to pick up with an article I wrote about a case involving a California law that involves not only freedom of religion, but the issue of abortion. By hook or by crook seems to be the sentiment of some who promote abortion in this country. When they could not get their way by federal law, they engaged in the federal judiciary. When the judiciary abandoned them, they went back to using state law to get their way. And when state law didn't get them all they wanted, they used regulation to backdoor themselves around the law. Such seems to be the case in California. In 2014, the California Department of Managed Healthcare, known as the DMHC, sent letters to several private health insurers directing them that they remove any limitation or exclusions regarding abortion care services from their healthcare coverage. It seems that the agency had approved plans with such limitations, which the DMHC's director believed to be in error. Several churches, including Foothill Church, Calvary Chapel Chino Hills, and Shepherd of the Hills Church, after receiving the director's letter, asked if they could receive exemptions as religious organizations. They requested health care insurance coverage that did not cover all legal abortions. Specifically, they requested that their policies either exclude abortions or only cover abortions where the pregnancy unquestionably threatens the life of the mother. Now, they were told by two different insurers that they understood the DMHC letter to preclude even religious exemptions. This was incorrect, however. The DMHC had previously determined that religious employers could legally restrict abortion coverage consistent with their beliefs. The DMAC would later approve a request to exclude abortion care services from religious employers, except when the abortion was necessary to save the life of the mother. However, these churches were unable to secure coverage that aligned with their beliefs, leading to the case in the federal district court, Foothill Church et al. versus Mary Watanabe in her official capacity as director of the California Department of Managed Healthcare, which I'll refer to as Foothill Church versus Watanabe. After nearly three years of litigation, the churches requested a religious exemption from DMHC. Now, California's attorney general stated that DMHC could only consider granting exemptions to health care plans, not employers or other planned customers. As of the issuing of the court order in Foothill Church versus Watanabe, no plan had asked for approval for an exemption from abortion coverage from the DMHC. Now, in 2019, the District Court for the Eastern District of California dismissed the church's claims. The Ninth Circuit affirmed the District Court's dismissal of the Establishment Clause claim, but sent the case back to consider the plaintiff's free exercise and equal protection claims. Now, the court has reviewed the case, including the additional amicus or third-party brief from the California Catholic Conference. Let's look at the two claims separately, starting with the free exercise claim. The Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment, which applies to the states through the 14th Amendment, provides that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. 
However, the right to freely exercise one's religion does not relieve an individual of the obligation to comply with a valid and neutral law of general applicability on the ground that the law proscribes or prescribes conduct that his religion prescribes or proscribes. I know, Congress did not make this law, but the courts have been ignoring that little fact for decades. Even looking at the section of the First Amendment being quoted shows the problems with the court's interpretation. The Constitution says Congress, which the courts have extended to all governments, shall make no law prohibiting the free exercise of religion. Yet here, the court says that that's not entirely true. The court claims, based on previous opinions from the Supreme Court, that your right to freely exercise your religion does not relieve an individual of the obligation to comply with a valid and neutral law of general applicability on the ground that the law proscribes or prescribes conduct that his religion prescribes or proscribes. Doesn't that mean that the government can coerce you into violating your religious belief as long as the law was neutral and generally applicable? Now, don't give up on this judge quite yet, though. A law is not generally applicable if it invites the government to consider the particular reasons for a person's conduct by providing a mechanism for individualized exemptions. Nor is it generally applicable if it includes a formal system of entirely discretionary exceptions. A valid and neutral law of general applicability must be upheld if it is rationally related to a legitimate government purpose. In contrast, Laws that are not neutral and are not generally applicable are subject to strict scrutiny. Under strict scrutiny, laws must be justified by a compelling government interest and must be narrowly tailored to advance that interest. If you follow the Constitution study for any time, you shouldn't be surprised that the question of scrutiny would come up in this case. Like most federal courts, rather than following the supreme law of the land, their standard seems focused on allowing government to meddle where the law does not allow. Now, this is most easily shown by the standard of judicial review, or scrutiny, the court assigns to a case. In U.S. constitutional law, when a court finds that a law infringes on a fundamental constitutional right, it may apply the strict scrutiny standard to nevertheless hold the law or policy constitutionally valid if the government can demonstrate in court that the law or regulation is necessary to achieve a compelling state interest. Notice, scrutiny also known as standards of judicial review, is not based in the Constitution of the United States, but in constitutional law, which is nothing more than the opinion of judges about the Constitution. So whenever you hear the term scrutiny in a legal case, understand that what the court is doing is deciding how hard the government must work in order for the court to allow it to infringe on your rights. In this case, the judge says the claims are subject to strict scrutiny which is the highest level of effort the government must show to violate the Constitution. Getting back to the case and the free exercise claim, the churches argue that mere creation of a formal mechanism for granting exceptions renders a policy not generally applicable, regardless of whether any exceptions have been given, and thus challenge the state's decision to enforce the abortion coverage requirement against the church's health care plans in the first place. The director argues the churches are challenging her refusal to extend an exemption to plaintiffs because they are not entities subject to regulation by DMHC under the Knoxney Act. In other words, the churches argue the director would not extend a religious exemption to them, while the director claims she did not because she could not. Seems like a bit of he said, she said, doesn't it? 
Not really. Nonetheless, as the court was careful to confirm at the hearing, the director now concedes that the existence of a system of individual exemptions in the Knee Act subjects her decision not to expand the plan exemption framework to the churches to strict scrutiny. Accordingly, the court must decide whether this policy advances interests of the highest order and is narrowly tailored to achieve those interests. Now, everyone in this case agrees that the law under which the director of DMHC acted is subject to strict scrutiny. That means the court, and specifically this judge, will determine if the interests advanced by the law are sufficient to deny the people of California their rights protected under the Constitution. Does anyone else see how insidious this is? You have a government actor, the judge, determining whether or not a government's interest is sufficient to infringe on your rights. This is exactly what the Bill of Rights was created to prevent. While all parties in the case agree that the state needs to meet the highest burden of proof that they can infringe on your rights, the state still needs to make that case. Director explains her decision not to make an exemption at the church's request by citing her policy not to entertain requests for exemptions unless they come from a plan. She cites three compelling government interests. So the director of DMHC gives three reasons why the state should be allowed to infringe on the rights of these churches and their members. I want to look at them individually. First, the policy prevents a flood of exemption requests from over 26 million enrollees who may object to their plan's covered care services. Look at the very first concern the director brings up. She does not seem concerned with the impact on the people or the infringement on their rights, but how much work it will make for her and her department. Think of the arrogance that shows. In the meantime, you should be forced to support the murder of unborn children because allowing you an exemption might make too much work for her department. Second, it prevents significant third-party harm to enrollees, which may occur if employers opt out of legally mandated health care coverage. I'm not an expert in the California Constitution, but I am pretty sure the mandate the director is referring to is not legal. Did the citizens of California delegate to their government the authority to regulate health care coverage? A quick search of the state's constitution showed, notwithstanding any other provision of this constitution or existing law, a person elected to or serving in the legislature on or after November 1st, 1990, shall participate in the Federal Social Security Retirement Disability Health Insurance Program, and the state shall pay only the employer's share of the contribution necessary to such participation. Beyond the members of the legislature, I could find no power delegated by the people to the state of California to place requirements on their health care coverage. Furthermore, by mandating that citizens of California purchase health care that meets certain requirements, they are depriving them of the liberty to choose a plan that best meets their needs and their beliefs. This violates the due process clause of the constitutions of both California and the United States. From California, we read, persons may not twice be put in jeopardy of the, for the same offense, be compelled in a criminal case to be a witness against themselves, or be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And from the U.S. Constitution, no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Now, the director's last argument is, third, it appropriately restricts DMHC's jurisdiction as authorized by California state legislature. The director seems more worried about the restrictions put in place by the legislature than the Constitution she took an oath to support. 
Now, thankfully, none of these arguments persuaded the judge. None of these interests are sufficiently compelling, nor is the department's rigid approach narrowly tailored. Now, what about the church's claim of a violation of the Equal Protection Clause? The Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment prohibits a state from denying to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the law, which essentially directs that all persons similarly situated should be treated alike. A viable equal protection claim must show that the defendants acted with an intent or purpose to discriminate against the plaintiff based on membership in a protected class. The question the judge is trying to answer is, did the director target these churches because they were religious organizations? In other words, was the director of DMHC attempting to discriminate against them? Here, the judge was not convinced. The court previously dismissed church's Equal Protection Clause claim for two reasons. First, the churches did not allege facts giving rise to a reasonable inference that the director treated them differently than similarly situated persons and businesses. The court noted the challenged letters apply to plans, not purchasers, and do not make any classification with respect to the purchasers. Second, the churches did not allege facts showing that defendant acted at least in part because of, not merely in spite of, plaintiff's religious beliefs. The judge in this case split the decision. She granted summary judgment for the churches on their free exercise claim, but found for DMHC on the equal protection claim. The case, however, is not over. While this order is in place, the judge also ordered both parties to provide supplemental briefings. Now, while this case moves forward, and whether you live in California or not, I want you to consider this. The only reason the judge found for the churches is she did not believe the director made a sufficiently compelling case to infringe on the rights of these churches. Think about that for just a minute. Yes, the case was about the free exercise of religion, specifically whether or not churches could be forced to provide abortion coverage in their employees' health insurance. But the underlying jurisprudence came down to scrutiny and how hard government had to work to overrule the Constitution of the United States. Also, it seems the reason the judge granted judgment to the director on the Equal Protection Clause claim was because the state did not apply its rule to the churches directly, but got private third parties to do it for them. Is that what passes for justice in America today? Is this what people call the rule of law? The protection of your rights determined by a single judge? How safe do you feel when the protection of your rights comes down to how a judge feels about a compelling government interest? What about the compelling government interest laid down in the Declaration of Independence? That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Doesn't the current abuse of judicial review, making the rights of people subject to government interest, turn the purpose of government upside down? So what we see in California, we actually see popping up in a lot of states. We see uh, onerous regulations put in place, sometimes without any religious exemption, sometimes with limited religious exemption. But in all cases, or I should say pretty much all cases, what we're seeing is the government deciding whether or not it will recognize a person's freedom of religion. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that many of these laws are actually designed to establish a form of religion based in a, a faith or a belief in a certain worldview, generally uh, secular and frequently anti-life. 
Now, in the next segment, I want to take some recent examples. There have been plenty I've covered recently, but i got a few new that I want to pop up and I want to review with you. But before I do that, I have to take a break. Now, let me know. If you found this interesting, I might I recommend that you visit AmericaOutloud.com regularly. In fact, even daily. Not just for the Constitution study, but for all the contributors. There are plenty of stories and articles and podcasts and videos that you'll find interesting and, more importantly, that you should share. See, we talk about the, the reading and studying of the Constitution here, but it also involves the teaching the rising generation to be free. In fact, I think we should teach all generations to be free. Part of that involves providing them with information. So again, do me a favor, head to AmericaOutloud.com and make it your daily stop for news and happenings. Take all those articles, videos, podcasts, share them. Share them with friends, share them with family, Help be part of the solution. Help us as we continue to secure the blessings of liberty for all Americans. While many things we hear are lies, we know one thing is true. Viruses exist and people get sick. Look, there's no guaranteed way to keep from getting sick, but there is a way to reduce your chances. Cofix RX, the original povidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray that you hear Dr. McCullough talking about, provides an additional invisible layer of protection from colds, flu, coronaviruses, and more. Click the banner ad on americaoutloud.com and use promo code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Stay protected with Cofix RX. Hello, I'm Ben Marble, MD, and I founded MyFreeDoctor.com as a donation-supported, faith-based nonprofit with a mission to save lives by delivering free doctor visits to patients in all 50 states of America. MyFreeDoctor.com treats a broad range of health concerns like COVID-19, long COVID, sinus infections, urinary tract infections, rashes, medication refills, and more. So please visit MyFreeDoctor.com, where we're healing America one person at a time. You wouldn't go a day without brushing your teeth or washing your hands. What about washing your nose? I mean, your nose does filter the air you breathe, air loaded with bacteria, viruses, and irritants. Make nasal hygiene part of your routine with Clear. No messy bottles to fill, no drowning sensation. Clear is a natural drug-free saline with the added benefit of xylitol, which blocks bacterial and viral adhesion. Available in stores and online at clear.com. That is X-L-E-A-R.com. Welcome back, Everyday Americans. Once again, you've rejoined the Constitution Study, where we read and study the Constitution. We teach the rising generation to be free. I'm glad you could join me. Today, we're talking about the importance of freedom of religion and just how important is this to the American Republic. Now, one of the greatest attacks on freedom of religion has actually come from the courts. And it's this, this uh, as I mentioned before, this question of uh, levels of judicial review, which you often hear referred to as scrutiny. And this idea that um, your rights are subject to the needs of government, which to me is completely antithetical. It's completely backwards from what our founding fathers created. We have a Bill of Rights to protect them from government intrusion. Our rights, our needs, are to supersede government, not the other way around. In other words, if we're looking at a level of scrutiny, it should not be how hard the government has to work to infringe on our rights. 
It's how hard the government has to work to prove they actually have the right to do what they want. It's upside down. It's backwards. Now, this has led into a, an interesting discussion. Um, you may remember I talked about a talk Justice Sotomayor had back in Minnesota where she was concerned about the legitimacy of the court because, well, they don't follow public opinion. I pretty much had a good rant on that one. But now there's another page to that story. You see, Chief Justice Roberts kind of has a reputation for, well, trying to defend the integrity of the court. I might disagree with that, but it depends on your definition of integrity. I would say it's more the reputation of the court. He wants people to think of the court as good. But in, in some recent public statements, he said, quote, the court has always decided controversial cases and decisions always have been subject to intense criticism, and that's entirely appropriate. I absolutely agree. Controversial cases, difficult decisions need to be subject to criticism. That's how you find errors, not through the echo chamber of, well, the court must be right because the court said so. But he went on. He says, but I don't understand the connection between the opinions people disagree with and the legitimacy of the court. Okay, I, so far, I, I kind of think I know where he's going. Well, I do because I've read part of this already, but um, I, I can just kind of agree with it, right? The people are going to disagree with the court. Uh, the question is, is their disagreement a question of the legitimacy of the court? Is there disagreement with the outcome or with the standard which which the court came to that outcome? Now, Roberts continued, he said, you don't want the political branches telling you what the law is, and you don't want, the pu you want public opinion to be the guide of what the appropriate decision is. And I absolutely agree. See, the only time the political branches should have an impact on what the law is, is when they write the law. You see, if, if Congress writes a law and the president signs a law and they don't like what the law says, it's not their job to tell the, the uh, judicial branch, hey, we didn't mean this, interpret it this way. They need to fix the law. There are plenty of laws that are just, they're poorly written. They're really awful. Their job is to fix it, not to simply try to influence the political, the, the judicial branch. By the same standard, it's not public opinion that should guide the decision of the of the court. It it really must be what the law says. I've been having this debate with a with someone online who claims that just because you disagree, just because I disagree with an opinion, uh, I, I call the justices uh, behaving badly. No, there are plenty of of opinions where I, I say, I don't, I, I like the outcome, but I don't like how you got there. Or maybe, may or maybe the, the position of the law is something I disagree with, but they've properly applied it. No, no, no. I don't do that. I, I have a specific standard for what I refer to as bad behavior, which I'll get to in a minute because it's very important. Uh, he and I said, yes, all of our opinions are open to criticism. In fact, our members do a great job of criticizing some opinions from time to time. But simply because people disagree with an opinion is not a basis for criticizing the legitimacy of the court. Again, I agree, but I'm going to go back for Mr. Roberts and I'm going to make some, what should be for him an extremely painful point. 
See, he says, you don't want public opinion being the guide to the appropriate decision. I have three words for you, Mr. Roberts. Affordable Care Act. Mr. Roberts is the only justice I am aware of that wrote both the opinion and the dissent for the same case. Let me me say that again. Mr. Roberts is the only justice I know that wrote both the opinion and the dissent in the same case. Now, why is that important? Well, because, based on what I've heard from many court watchers, the Affordable Care Act was going to be found unconstitutional. The uh, uh, the mandates or several parts are going to be found unconstitutional. And there were a lot of concerns about severability and what would happen if that would be. And there was a lot of public pressure. Now, the reason that's important is because Roberts was originally against the Affordable Care Act, according to court watchers. Again, I'm not the man. I didn't listen to him. I didn't talk with him. This is the, the information that's been brought to me. That's why he wrote what be uh, what eventually became the dissent, because he thought it was a bad law. But you see, there was public pressure brought on on, and eventually he changed his mind, so he wrote the opinion, an opinion by the way, where he said, um, uh, he said one thing I agree with and one thing I disagree with. Seriously, the seriously disagree. This to me is bad behavior. See what Mr. Roberts did is he said, well, this is a fine but we're going to redefine the fine to be a tax. So you're paying a tax for not doing something. And he suddenly said that came under the taxing authority of Congress and all was fine. Except if you read Article 1, Section 8, Clause 1, Congress can only collect taxes to do three things. To pay the debts of the United States, to provide for the common defense of the United States, and for the general welfare of the United States. Capital U, capital S, proper noun, the very same United States mentioned in the 10th Amendment. Healthcare is not the general welfare of the United States. It may be the general welfare of the people, but it doesn't say that they have the right to tax for the general welfare of the people, only for the union, the United States. So that's where I, I, I criticize. That's where the legitimacy of the court to me is in question, not because I disagree with the outcome, but because he basically, he first rewrote the law, which is a violation of the Constitution. It is Congress that writes the law, not the courts. He turned a fine into a tax. He called a fine a tax in order to, uh, uh, in order to try and pass muster. And then he completely ignored the fact that Congress doesn't have the legal authority to collect taxes on things you don't do. Now, Chief Justice Roberts did say something I think was quite appropriate and I wish all Americans would learn. It is not the role of the court to protect you from the political choices that you made. See, everybody that voted for the political for the Affordable Care Act, was, everybody was hired by, by the people. We voted for them. We, we may not have voted for them individually, but collectively, we chose them. And it's not the court's job to overrule our political decisions. So let me also mention, I, I talked about bad behavior and the legitimacy of the court. You see, contrary to popular opinion, federal judges do not have lifetime appointments. I know some of you are shocked. Federal judges serve for a specific 
period. It says, the judges, this is Article 3, Section 1 of the Constitution. The judges, both of the supreme and inferior courts, shall hold office during good behavior. Federal judges only hold office as long as they behave properly. Why is that important? Well, if somebody routinely and frequently violates their oath to support the Constitution, if some, if a judge routinely places the opinion of judges above the supreme law of the land, that, ladies and gentlemen, is bad behavior. They should be removed from office, meaning they should be impeached. Now, I'm not saying you impeach them just because you disagree with the outcome. I'm not even saying you 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 impeach them because they have a a singular opinion that you that uh, appears to violate the Constitution. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations designed to put the American people under the despotic rule of the court, that, ladies and gentlemen, is not good behavior. That is bad behavior. And that, I believe, should be, is an impeachable offense. Now, again, the courts are one of the biggest uh, actors, but they're not alone. Over the last year or so, the U.S. military has become truly abusive to the religious, it's been there for a while, it's just gotten to the next level when it comes to the religious freedom of the our volunteers in the military. See, a, a three-judge panel of the Sixth Circuit told a, a group of Air Force members that uh, if, if they were to prove that if they wanted to, to win their case that the military was not granting them religious exemptions, they had to provide significant proof. Well, according to the plaintiffs, they have. See, they claim to have evidence that the military systematically denied requests for religious exemptions while allowing uh, uh, exemptions for other purposes. This is an important standard because the um, the mandate has been placed on hold by the Court of Appeals uh, in for these airmen and, and officers because uh, they believe they may have a case and there'd be great harm if they if they were forced to get the shots and then found out, oh, no, you should have gotten an exemption. But think about that. In the military... Suddenly, it's like, well, I have a religious exemption again. I have a religious objection to this treatment. I wish an exemption, and you're denied. But you come in and say, I have a medical reason or some other reason. In many cases, they were approved. I want to follow this because if you think about it, what does it say about America that we would deny religious freedom to the very men and women who have raised their right hand? sworn oath to protect our freedoms, including our freedom of religion. But we're going to deny it to them. See, to me, this situation and the outcome of this case says a lot more about the American people than it does about the Army or about the Air Force. But in another example, look at the flip side of that story, right? So we have we have what appears to be a group that says they have evidence that the military, the military systemically denied the uh, uh, religious exemptions to the COVID jab. Yet now we have a report that the army wants to make accommodations for soldiers to avoid states with abortion bans. See, General James McConville 
told a Defense One uh, reporter in an interview that soldiers or recruits will be able to request a deployment to a state with legal abortion. But he did say that it would not be a rubber stamp process. Now again, I want you to stop and think about this for just a second. We have a, a federal government, a commander-in-chief, that illegally mandates the uh, members of the military take an experimental jab. It is not a vaccine. It is not FDA approved. There's only one version of this that's FDA approved. And to my knowledge, it still is not available in the United States. This is a violation of the Uniform Code of Military Justice. They have a legal ability to opt out. They are required by law to be informed about both the, the effects and the possible dangers of taking an experimental use authorization product and that they have the legal authority to opt out and they're being denied that even if they just say we have a religious objection. But if you want to make sure you serve where you can kill a baby, well, they'll try to accommodate that. So I guess religious exemptions, not so much. But uh, hey, belief in in, uh, uh, murder in the womb, no problem, we'll accommodate that. So I'm going to circle back to the original question. Just how important is freedom of religion to America? Not just to the individuals, but to America as a whole. Well, let's go all the way back to uh, Noah Webster. Now, in his 1828 dictionary, his first sense of the definition of religion, he says religion in its most comprehensive sense includes a belief in the being and perfection of God. That's the most comprehensive, the most detailed version. He then compares religion to things like theology and virtue and morality. And then he makes this interesting statement. Religion is any system of faith and worship. Because in this sense, religion comprehends the belief and worship of pagans and Mohammedans, as well as Christians, any religion consisting in the belief of a superior power or powers governing the world and the worship of such power or powers. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, freedom of religion is your freedom to not simply worship, but to believe. To believe in something. The, the ability to believe that, I believe that there that there's a God in heaven, that he created the Bible, that uh, he created the world, he created the universe. He, he helped write the Bible, that his son Jesus came to pay for our sins after we screwed up. That's how what I believe. I know there are people that believe differently. There are people that believe that the universe is sentient. Uh, there are others that believe, listen, it's all blind chance. It's just a roll of the dice. Dice. That's what they believe. And, and how do they worship this belief? Well, I worship it by, by following the dictates of Scripture, by going to church, by uh, getting instruction from other experts. Some may worship it by saying, listen, I don't want to hear any of that. No, we can only have a rational basis. If, you, if I can't see it, taste it, touch it, it doesn't exist, um, and on and on and on. But the important thing is this idea of freedom of religion is the freedom to believe and then to act on that belief. It is a basis of liberty that I think we get lost in when we hear the word religion. See, we tend to think of religion, and yeah, in America we tend to think of maybe Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism. But ultimately, it's a question of, are you allowed to not only think and believe a certain way, but to exercise that? And to me, 
That is one of the things that makes America special. You're not allowed to think differently in Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia. You're not allowed to think differently in Russia or, or, or China. But in America, we're allowed to believe in different things. That means we also have to allow others to believe in different things as well. Now, please do me a favor, share the news, let everyone know that they can listen to the Constitution Study 4 p.m. Eastern Time every weekday on America Out Loud Talk Radio, heard on the iHeartRadio network. They can also hear it on podcasts. Just use your favorite app to get the podcast or use our apps for Apple, Android, and Alexa. Just go to AmericaOutloud.com and on the homepage you'll find the links. But do me a favor, share this information. It is the only way we can secure the blessings of liberty from sea to shining sea.